0: We're in the book of Revelation. If you want to turn to the book of Revelation, that would be great. That's where we'll find ourselves this morning. Revelation, if you're new to the Bible, is at the very end of your Bible. It's the last book, and we're in the this third chapter actually today. And what we're doing is we're looking at uh, messages to seven churches. A little bit of a background. The person who wrote this was actually a pastor of one of these churches. His name was John. We could call him Pastor John, if you will. And he wrote uh, a vision that he received from, he says, Jesus Christ himself. We believe him at that. And these visions were given not for him himself, but for the seven churches that seemed to be in an area in Asia Minor, what would now be modern Turkey. You can still go to every single one of these sites today many of them still have ruins that are very fascinating and interesting. In fact, Ephesus has only been uncovered about 20%, and so there's about 80% that still has yet to be excavated uh, at Ephesus, and it's a fascinating study. So these were real churches with real church buildings and real people in them in real cities. These were not just made up, these were not hypothetical, and so they were very specific in terms of how the message came to them. They they had little nuances that are really only picked up when you can kind of understand the nature of a city. Today we find ourselves in the city of Sardis that does not exist anymore um, in, the, in the form that it was. There's there's settlements kind of out, outside of it. But I want to talk a little bit about the city as we get into this because last week I I talked briefly about kind of the ethos of a city and how. The ethos of a city or the spirit of the city or the nature of a particular city has everything to do with the kind of message that, that should be preached in that particular kind of city. I made some comments about our own city and, and what I think of our own city and how the message of Jesus in particular applies to us. And today, Sardis is a fascinating study, really. Sardis is a fascinating study. Here's where it exists, kind of in the map. Um, we've gone through uh, four so far. Ephesus is where we started. This is where it's written. The book of Revelation is written on the island of Patmos. And then it starts in Ephesus. We've learned about Smyrna, the church in Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira last week. And here's Sardis. So it's, it's, it's far in off the coast. But if you look carefully on my fantastic map, uh, you see a little dotted line. You see that there's kind of this This dotted line here that would have shown a little bit of the trade route that was used. And so what you have is kind of in the center of that region, Sardis is a a major city that would have um, had a lot of trade that's gone through it, which which means that it's likely a, a wealthier city. Sardis has a, a large Jewish community in it. So, so from Jerusalem, Jews have spread, and, and there's actually a large, one of the largest synagogues that existed outside of Jerusalem actually was located in Sardis. And you, so you have this kind of pagan god and goddess kind of worship. You have the Jewish community, some of which would not have understood Jesus Christ as their Messiah, and then you would have also had a Christian community. So there's a lot going on religiously in the city of Sardis. Uh, it was also a very powerful military outpost, and I'll tell you why. Through the form of a picture, um, it was known for this Acropolis, which these are ruins, and, and what you have in the Acropolis is kind of a fortified part of a city, uh, and it was on a hill. And so, I- as you well know, if you've ever played capture the flag when you're younger or presently, you know that the best place to build a fortress of any kind is at the top of a hill, usually, before pre-jet, I guess. Where you could just bomb whatever you wanted to bomb, but in those days, how you defended yourself was you just got high up on a city and you are on a hill and you built a wall around it and you kind of fortified yourself there. In fact, it was so well known as a military outpost that there's only two known times in which the city was actually overtaken. A lot of times in ancient cities, uh, they 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 have high turnover rate. So a lot of people, you know, would, would kind of go, oh, I, I like that city, so let's, let's go after that city. We take it over, uh, we rule it, et cetera, et cetera, and we get all the plunder from within. Sardis is one of these places that has a lot of wealth, but it's very hard to get into. In fact, if you know the story of King Midas, anyone know the story of King Midas? Everything he touched turned to gold, right? That comes from the city of Sardis because there was kind of a gold rush there and, and, and that's where that myth comes from. We're not sure whether he was an actual king, and with actually everything he turned to was gold. Actually, the myth goes he turned the river to gold, which is, now we would know would be impossible. But anyways, it was a place that people wanted to go after, but it was easy to defend. But the people there, and the city officials there, they got lazy, And actually, there was outside of this particular city, there was a number of soldiers that were watching. They were kind of trying to figure out, how do we we get this city? How do we get this Acropolis? How do we break down this fortress? And so they were watching the soldiers, and it could have actually been on one of these walls. And one of the soldiers was standing on the top, and his helmet fell off. And they watched him climb down the wall and go pick up his helmet and then climb back up the wall. And later that night, they came and they got into the city by climbing the exact route that this uh, innocent little soldier had kind of showed them. Uh, at least that's how the story goes. And literally, it had been kind of captured within one night, which is very unusual in those days. Usually, sieges take a long time. When you, when you sack a city, uh, it, it, it takes perhaps... Uh, days, weeks, months. But this happened almost overnight. Now this information is going to be very important when we read the text. I want you to pay attention a little bit as we read the text to what's happening. So let me read this for you. Starting in chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This is essentially John pastor john writing and saying the same guy who wrote all the other letters is writing this letter Uh, the seven spirits and the seven stars are are seven is a number that that the bible often uses to describe god so it's always associated with control and sovereignty of god and so essentially it's that this letter is from the creator of the universe the one who's the true mayor the true ruler of this city And this is what that person who is Jesus Christ revealed says. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Hear it there? A surprise, a thief at night. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his or her name out of the book of life. I will confess his or her name before my Father and before His angels. He or she who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's Word for us. This is a church that's in trubs. That's my translation. Abbreviated for convenience. Convenience. I think all of these letters, all seven of them, have in a sense a very intense word. I've noticed the last month um, that, that it, it feels like these are very hard words. So, spoiler alert, this one's the worst. This is a church that is in major troubles, major trouble, a lot of trouble. And there are five things that Jesus says to this church. And I think all of them appropriately should be followed by an exclamation point. And there's one encouragement. But that encouragement is almost a backhanded way of Jesus saying a, 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 a five imperative, another imperative. So in other words, he uses his encouragement in a way that informs this church that he's serious. In other words, there's really there's really six spots here six points, six words, six warnings, if you will, or five warnings with one encouragement that becomes a warning, that this church needs to pay attention. I I want desperately for this not to be our church. I want desperately that this is something, this is a church we can just learn from, and my hope all week long in understanding this is, I hope this does not describe our church But the biggest problem with this church is they did not understand the danger that they were in. So I want to say, perhaps it is. Perhaps this is our church. What if it described our church? And if it actually described our church, you'll find that these imperatives, these important things that Jesus wants to say are really important for us to hear. And right off the hop, we see that it says, I know your works. I know know what you're doing. I know what you're like. It's like Jesus has visited this church himself. We we, we believe that. We believe that through the Spirit of God, Jesus himself visits our church and he can see what's going on in our church and he knows what's going on in our church. And even though you may think of us like a communal or a corporate body, he sees individual hearts and individual motivations. How's that for terrifying in some ways, right? Can you imagine if on the way out there was a person standing at the back who, as you walked out, informed you of what you were like and your motivation for doing your job or what you do with your money? It would terrify you. Someone you didn't know even said your name, it would probably terrify you. This is what Jesus says I know your works. And you have the reputation of being live, but you are dead. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Just imagine for a second. Have you ever been to a church where it looks vibrant, looks alive, people look happy, things are happening? Perhaps you feel that you're in a church that feels a little bit dead, and you go to this church and you're like, "Wow, I wish we could be more like that church." There's a lot happening. They've got all kinds of programs going on, and people are people. The music is loud. They're serving on mission everywhere. They're serving poor people. They're serving widows. They're serving orphans. They're doing everything great. They've got good systems in place. You can get really well assimilated in this church. They can get you through the front door of their church and they can get you serving and get you connected to a city group. And okay, now I'm really personal, aren't I? And this is what Jesus says. I know that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. It's a terrifying moment for this church if they pay attention to it. Why is this church dead? I have no idea, actually. The text never says why Jesus says they are dead. could be a variety of reasons. I think we uncover some of them as the story goes along. So the first thing he says in this five warning business is wake up. It's the first thing he says. A really important word. That's why Julie, like I think the Spirit of God was at work this morning connecting what was going on because the music was loud. You couldn't sleep through that. Right? I wish I would have planned that, but I didn't. I think there's a sense in which We all need to be woken up. It says, wake up. Wake up. This is the first imperative. It's actually a phrase that that probably is better translated, be watchful. Because wake up seems like you're sleeping. So there's kind of this this sleepiness to this, right? And And that's exactly what happens to us as people. There's kind of this sleepy lethargy to us sometimes. You know, we go to work or we go to school, we need that first cup of coffee, right? We're, we kind of stumble into work, we stumble to the breakfast table, we stumble on our morning jog, we stumble into our Bibles if we've, we've committed to reading every day and we're, we're just kind of dozy and we're not alert. And then something happens, like we roll our ankle or kick the table or something and all of a sudden we're alert, right? Okay, maybe I'm just speaking for me. Something that wakes us up. And this is what Jesus says. First thing I want to say to you is you better watch out. You've got to be watchful. Be watchful. When I read that, what came to my mind was something that is written earlier in Scripture. It's found in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is written by the disciple of Jesus who led all the other disciples of Jesus, if that helps you. The follower of Jesus who led a lot of the other followers. The first twelve. And he wrote something like this. He said, therefore, prepare your minds for action. That therefore is because, he basically says, because of the good news of Jesus, because you know and understand who Jesus is, therefore, prepare your mind for action. That's a pretty good translation, but it's not the original translation. Here's what the original translation that makes sense to all of us. Gird your loins up. Right? Does that make sense you? Gird your loins up? Like if we, Julie, next time, next Sunday, welcome each other by saying, gird your loins up. It sounds weird. You're like, either I don't want to know or it's talking about meat or something. I don't, Whatever, I have no idea. But gird your loins up actually comes from a military context. You see, the, the clothing of the day was a long robe or a toga. And what girding your loins up literally meant was when you went into battle or did something athletic or did something military, what you did is you took the bottom of that long toga and you pulled it up and you would tuck it into your belt so you could run. Anyone ever tried to run in a long toga or a dress? Doesn't work very well, does it? Right, yeah, it's terrible. You fall down a lot. And so what you do by doing that is you say, I am ready for what comes next. I love that image. We're all watching baseball these days. I don't care if you're not watching baseball. You're watching baseball, I'm sure. If you're not aware that the Blue Jays are deep in the hole in the playoffs, I don't know if you're breathing. Anyways, so I'll use a baseball metaphor. One thing you can't see from the cameras is that before each pitch comes from the mound, each player on the field goes like this. They're ready. Every time. Every single time. Every player. Even the catcher. Gives the signs. Give the signal. I'm ready. That's what Jesus says to this church. Get Ready. You have got to be in a state of readiness. A disciple of Jesus Christ is always in ready state. Always ready to hear from Jesus. And truthfully, truthfully, not all of us, but some of us, maybe even many of us, have our gloves dangling at the side. And we're not ready. We're not ready for what Jesus is going to teach us. We're not active. We're not watchful. We're not paying attention to what's going on around us. We're not paying attention to what's going on in our own hearts. We're not up in the morning saying, Jesus, what do you want me to do today? Jesus, what are you leading me today? Jesus, who are you bringing in my life today? Jesus, what do I need to confess today? Jesus, where do I need to grow today? That's what Jesus says first of all. Because this church is sleepy. You see, they're doing a lot of activity, and it probably looks really spiritual. And this says, the text says, you have the reputation of being alive. That means other people have probably said, hey, those people look like they know what's going on. And Jesus said, inside you got dry rot. And so that's our first imperative. A disciple of Jesus is alert to the things going on I want to take this also to a we that we want to be a church that's alert everything we want to do wants to pay attention to this whether this is a description of us or not we want to be a church that's alert to Jesus is watchful That's why we pray in the morning before our service we're trying to be watchful that's why we have city groups who are trying to help people be watchful. That's the intent of those. What else does Jesus say? Before we even move on, let me just ask the question pointedly. What do you need to pay attention to? What right now, if Jesus came into your life and said, seriously, tell me straight up, What are you not paying attention to? How would you answer him? Let's move on. What's the next warning? Strengthen or I put act now. That's what the text says. Wake up and strengthen what remains. Really when you look at the translation, that's the best description. Almost like act fast. And again, here's what happens to us is we think we have all the time in the world. Ever have that happen to you? Where you think you, 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 know, you have a project at work or a project at school and the next thing you know, time has caught up with you and you're behind? Because you what? You didn't act when you should have acted. You didn't establish things when you should have established them. And Jesus said, I've got another imperative for you. Act fast. You think. You think you've got all the time in the world. It's one of the biggest myths that goes on that we believe. I'll break this down for a number of us in different categories. Some of us think we have all kinds of time to respond to Jesus. We think we have the rest of our life. We think we've, we've got things that are going wrong in our spiritual life, but you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to sin this way. I'm going I'm to do what I want to do and then when the time comes and when it's right and when I'm older and when I've got more time, I'll figure it out then. Here's what Jesus says. It doesn't work like that. What He says to that person, what He says to that church is, act now. Act fast. Not in a hurry. He says act fast. Why? Because you don't know what time He's given you to respond to Him. You and I don't know Even when we can see it coming, my father-in-law passed away this year. Even when you can see it coming at a distance, we still did not know how much time we had with him. And I'll tell you what, had I known what day we would lose my father-in-law, I would have lived differently. Had I known I had three months, three weeks, three days left, I would have said more. I would have done more. What was the problem? That I didn't want to do more? No, that wasn't the problem. What was the problem? That I didn't love my father-in-law? That wasn't a problem either. I loved him dearly. What was the problem? I didn't know how much time I had left to respond to him. And Jesus says this about every believer, you, every person, even those who do not believe, you don't know how much time you have. And in the case of this church, he says, I think one of your biggest problems is you think you have all the time in the world. Act fast. You're about to die. A disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, takes the opportunity while it exists. And a church full of disciples is a church that acts upon what we know and understand. We want to be a church that doesn't drag their feet so why, you know, say, hey, why are you thinking about a building? Why are you thinking about all these things? Why are you thinking about trying to start more churches? Because we don't know how long this church will exist. Nothing scared me more than that thought. I feel like we're just getting going. And Jesus says, you don't know how long you have this church. Isn't that a scary thought? Here's Jesus who basically says... If you're dead, there's no point in pouring life into you as a church, not as an individual. And we'll see that at the end of the text. And so it's an imperative that says, what needs to be done right now? And I want to challenge all of us. What do you need to do to get right with Jesus this morning, now? Not this afternoon, not later this week, not later this month. Not by next year, but now. Where in your life have you heard about Jesus and you got to figure it out? Maybe you're brand new to this whole Christianity thing. Perhaps you're trying to figure it out. We want to welcome you here. We have a church. We try to even use the language so that you can know and understand what this actually means. But I think it's important to tell you if you're brand new... That there comes a point when you simply have to make a decision about what you know about Jesus Christ. That the time does run out. That the opportunities don't always last forever. That's why this is a hard word. Jesus, says, you don't understand. If you know that there's two days left in someone's life, you better believe you tell them what you think about them, right? You ever, have you, if you've ever been on anyone's deathbed, I have. Again, I'm on my father-in-law's deathbed. You better believe I told him I loved him. And I did that because I said, tomorrow you may not be able to hear this. Six hours from now, you might not be able to hear this. And I think this is a good word for us to remind us That Jesus might be saying to you today, please figure out what you think of me now. This is your moment. Don't worry about the other people right now. You worry about you. What else does Jesus say? Well, he says kind of three things. Kind of really quick succession. He says, remember what you have received. Keep it and repent if not you will not wake up. You hear that? He goes back to this. Remember. Remembering is such an overlooked important part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Most of the time when we gather here on Sunday morning, you're not hearing a lot of new information. Perhaps you are, perhaps you're brand new, perhaps you don't really know and understand what the gospel is. And so I'll break it down for you. I never assume that everyone knows and understands what the gospel actually is. And here is what the gospel is. God creates a universe that is all good. He creates people that are perfect. And these people mess up. They choose their own way instead of listening to what God's way was for them. They choose their own word instead of choosing what God's word is for them. They make a choice to obey themselves and put themselves in control instead of allowing God to stay in control. And God says, from now on, you're going to need help if you want to get back to me. And the whole rest of the story, the whole Bible is about God drawing his people back. He is not a God that waited for us to come to him, but in the New Testament, he comes to us. That's who Jesus is. It's God coming to us to redeem us from the brokenness that started thousands of years ago to make it all right. That's who Jesus Christ is. That's why he's so important to us. Without Jesus Christ putting together all of the pieces, Humpty never gets back on the wall again. here's what you need to do to get in relationship with that God. You need to believe that Jesus is God become man. You need to trust your faith in Him. You need to set aside your Savior, whatever that is, yourself, your job, your money, your spouse, your family, you need to set aside that as your Savior and trust in Jesus as your ultimate Savior. I'll say penultimate Savior, the Savior above all. That's what someone who follows Jesus is. Someone who believes that and allows Jesus then to not just take over what they believe, but take over how they live. To take over their entire life. You can't earn this relationship with God. No amount of the good things you do will ever measure up to His standard. He said that. You ever looked at the Ten Commandments? That's His standard. Never break them. Ever. And if you do, there's going to be a penalty for it. The Bible says it's death. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, not only did he come to you, but then he paid the penalty for you on the cross. He said, you don't have to die if you trust in me. You can trust in my death, and what you'll get is a resurrection like mine. That's the good news of the gospel. It's news. It's information that we need to then Become followers of Jesus Christ. Friends, I can't tell you how many times just remembering that has changed something in my life. When I'm discouraged and feel hopeless, nobody likes me, nobody knows what it's like to be like me, nobody values my opinion when I feel that, I need to remember that Jesus is my hope. It's the only thing that pulls me out of some of those times. The majority of a disciple's life, the majority of a follower of Jesus Christ's life is remembering that. You say, oh, what about the deeper things of God? If you read through the story of Revelation, you will see a church that got into trouble because they thought they needed to move on from that information right there. It is that simple, but I tell you, you will spend the rest of your life unpacking and discovering the depth of that news. There are innumerable ways in which Jesus will show you how great He is once you know and believe that news. But I would say the disciple needs to spend a lot of time remembering that. Here's a practical tip. Uh, What what does it mean by uh, uh, remember? I I would say there's... There's all kinds of biblical literature or, or sorry, business literature that's put out now that says if you want to get really anything done, if you want to really accomplish something over a long period of time and not just have all great ideas. Are you one of those people like me that says tons of great ideas and nothing ever gets done? That's how I feel all the time, okay? So just imagine you have the best idea in the world and it never gets done. That's, that's how I can describe what goes on in my brain half the time. So I'm reading literature that helps me. You know what they said? Build a routine that helps you every day push the ball forward and get activity done. In other words, they were saying build a routine in your life that continually does one thing and you'd be surprised how over a long period of time it shows up. And so practically speaking, I would say build a routine to remember. Can you see coming to church to the big gathering on Sunday morning, not as going to church so that God's happy, but a routine built into your life so that you can remember how good God is? Can you see it like that? Can you see maybe Citigroup family as a place where you're reminded that God is at work in other people's lives beside yourself every week? Can you see it as that instead of just a meeting to attend? Can you see your Bible reading not as as a way of getting through Bible reading so that when the pastor talks about reading the Bible, you can say, yes, I did it. Can you see it as a way of remembering that God has been active and at work for thousands of years in people's lives instead of duty? That's my hope for us as a church. At the end of every service, we remember the death. Of Jesus Christ and resurrection. I think that's even my phone. Ignore that. I'm not available. Threw me off there actually. What's the last, what's the fourth thing? FYI, don't call me during the service. I might not have turned my ringer off. Pursue. Pursue. I th- th- this, is, this is what Jesus says. Remember then what you received, heard. Keep it. Keep it. Pursue. Pursue. The life of a disciple is not someone who comes and receives. It's someone who pursues. Here we strongly believe that true disciples... Pursue. They don't wait for the relationship just to come to them. They pursue. Yes, the Bible says God pursued us, but it also says you need to pursue God. The question for some of us is: are you in pursuit of God? Or are you just waiting for God to show up? Do you long? To see Jesus at work in your life? Or do you say, I will respond when he comes and shows up in whatever way that he will? It's funny, nothing else in our life comes this way. I've never heard one person, well, maybe I've heard one person go, you know, I have no idea how I saved this money. It just showed up one day in my bank account. Didn't do anything about it. Spent as much money as I could and suddenly I have more than I can handle. I've never heard that. And if I have heard that, come and see me after the service. I want to hear that story. But I have heard people say, I set aside, I pursued my savings account and I put aside $25 per month and in 20 years, here's what I had. I have heard that. a relationship with God in spite of the fact that it is good news and Jesus initiates and pursues us first is that he also calls us to pursue and he calls churches to pursue. Again, that's why we pray. We pray because we don't take it for granted that God will have our church around forever. There are times when we gather as a group on Sunday morning and I don't know how long this will last. Prayer is an act of pursuit for us. Not an act of duty. Can you see again, city group, community, reading your Bible, praying as an act of pursuit rather than just a duty we're trying to get you to do. Can you see that? And lastly, what does Jesus say? He says, repent we get this word mixed up all the time we think sometimes that the word repent means to ask for forgiveness but it doesn't repentance includes asking for forgiveness but the word repent actually means change and turn direction did you know that when Jesus came he preached the good news about himself do you know what he said repent and believe the good news he didn't say ask forgiveness and believe the good news because he implied that, that repentance meant change. It means changing direction. It means you're moving in this direction and you want to change and move this direction. The best example of this did not come from someone who went to this church. It came from my neighbor, who I don't, I don't know what she believes, but she taught me about Repentance. I tend to be a little scatterbrained. I know that's brand new news for a lot of you, okay? So I rented half of a garage. My neighbor, after a while, had to put down a piece of tape to make sure that when I came home from work, my stuff didn't just spill over to her side, okay? Okay, (laughs) some of you are like, that's exactly what I'd do if you rented a garage from me. I know, I get it. Okay so there was there was a couple times and then sometimes you know something would spill over and I'd be away for a week and she'd have to look at that little dirty plate or something or whatever it was a paintbrush on her side and so she finally wrote me an email that she said if like your stuff is on my side again and so I kept apologizing to her and I kept saying oh, I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry for doing this and she wrote me an email once and she said you say you're sorry a lot but nothing ever changes That was a hard day for me. When someone who didn't even understand necessarily repentance told me I needed to repent. Here's what she was saying. You can't just say you're sorry and do it again. True repentance means I don't want to do this again. And I will do what it takes to make sure that it doesn't happen again. I want to grow. And some of us, this is why our Christian life has stalled out. It's because we think repentance is just telling God, I'm really sorry for what I've done. And then we go right back and do whatever it is we want to do back over again. Jesus says, that's not repentance. That's called cheap grace. I did not die for that. I died to give you my spirit, which wanted to change your heart. That's, how we use, that's the language we use in our family. When I pray at night with my girls, there's times when my girls have said, Dear Jesus, give me a new heart. Touches me deeply because I don't pray that very much. I pray, I'm sorry, God. And I'm I'm not building a pattern, I'm not building a routine, I'm not pursuing, I'm not doing any of those things. And Jesus says, Repent repent, turn around, change, wake up, or you'll never wake up, he says. This is why I'm willing to look like an idiot in front of you. It's why I'm willing to plead with you this morning, because if you're asleep, right in the middle of our church, that terrifies me. And I don't know who is and who isn't. Jesus does, but I don't, because a lot of you look really active. You show up regularly. A lot of us, we could pull this off the Sardesian way. And I can only say, Jesus says, wake up, but I can't make you wake up. No amount of me screaming or yelling or crying will ever tug at your hearts deep enough to want to get you to change. You know the only thing that can get you to change is the Holy Spirit of God. He needs to come into your heart. The Bible describes it like this in the Old Testament, by the way, that when God came to one of the prophets, one of the prophets actually said, I will take my people and I will take their hearts of stone and I will create in them hearts of flesh. I will change their hearts. They had a dead heart. You know, the stone is not alive. Geologists, don't get into me with this. You know what I'm saying. He says, I will take a not living thing and I will make it living and beating. I will create life. I will wake you up. And this is how he ends. The one encouragement. As we close this thing out. He says, yet they still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled the garments, they will walk with me in white, for they are, they are worthy. Jesus says, you know in your church there's some people who actually have woken up and they are alive. And it is an encouragement. Such an encouragement that at a church that seems so dead Jesus says, there's still live people here. And here's the application I would say from that, is if you're alive, you have a responsibility to help those who are dead. Some of you are here because you felt you were part of a dead church and you bolted. Because it's hard to be around dead people. It's not fun, is it? You ever got in a group where everyone hates everyone and they don't want to be there? Right? Some of you teach classes like that. I'm Why are you here? I don't want to. That's the response. It's terrible atmosphere. But Jesus says to those, he says, hey, there are fit, faithful people in the midst of that. He doesn't ask those people to leave. He doesn't say start a new church. He doesn't say, get out of there while you can. He says, stay faithful. Stay faithful. Stay faithful. Help those who are not there. Perhaps, perhaps they will turn it around. Perhaps they will wake up. This is our mission, to be around people who are dead, not to judge them, not to tell them they're going to hell, but to help wake them to the goodness of Jesus Christ and say, isn't he grand? Isn't he great? Why would you not want to at least see if this is real? Why why would you not want to at least check out whether this is authentic and we, we believe what we say? I love that. Because Jesus promises, he says, you know, if you confess my name, you wear my name like a badge of honor, I will write your name in my book and nobody blots it out. I love that. Nobody can take your salvation away from you. It it doesn't happen because you're in a bad church. It doesn't happen because you're in a dead church. It doesn't happen because you're around sinful people. It only happens when you don't wake up. I think the, the last image I'll leave us with is just this idea that as a church we want to never be in pursuant or, or not in pursuant of Jesus Christ. We will do everything we can. You have my word on that. We'll do everything we can to stay alert. Anyone ever watch Homes on Homes? We used to get it. We don't anymore. Not paying for that. one of the most awkward things about homes on homes if you haven't seen it it's a it's a home renovator who thinks everyone's house is actually falling apart some are and here's what's remarkable is those people who when you pull open a wall or you rip off a floor and and mike holmes looks down and goes do you realize how close you were to a fire if these two wires touch each other, this whole thing goes down in flames and I don't even have a TV show anymore. If, you don't, if, if this pipe burst, you'd have a flood on your hands. Do you know how close this pipe was to bursting? And the look on these people's faces. I mean, it's like, I had no idea I was in that much danger. I had no idea it was that much danger. What I don't want us to be is like those people and be stunned. I had no idea I was that close to death. I will plead with you. Some of you do not know how close you are to death. Some churches do not know how close they are to death. How close are we to death? I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing. I don't want to find out. I want to be like the people that Jesus says, You're clothed in white. You've been faithful, not because you're perfect people, but because you trusted in me. You see, the amazing thing about this is is that they don't give themselves white clothes, Jesus does. They don't tromp around Sardis because of their good works. They tromp around Sardis, clothed in white, pure and blameless in the sight of God because Jesus Himself has claimed them and said, You are my children. I will remove all stains from you. Because they have believed Him and trusted and have woken up. And so band, as you come up, here's how we'll leave this thing. Celebrating our family meal again your visitor this morning, thank you. This is not always how the family discussion goes. And I'm thankful for that, aren't you? But if you for any reason are feeling hopeless, you have not heard the truth of the gospel. If you are feeling like you have to work harder, then you have not ultimately heard that the gospel is about what Jesus does for you, not about what you do for Jesus. If you think that you have to walk away and you have to to be less sinful, then you are not hearing that Jesus says, I will cover all of your sin. If you are saying, I have to change by myself, then you are not hearing Jesus says, I will change your heart. Let me. And what we do as a church family is this symbol. It's a gift we believe that is given to us from Jesus Christ. And this is what it represents. The cup represents his blood. The bread represents his body. Here's what these things represent. The cup represents the pain and the blood that he spilled to put you in right position with God and give you hope. The bread represents that he walked this earth. He just didn't do it from a distance sitting on a throne like a lot of kings would. He's a king that came to us and broke his own body and suffered in a way that we would normally have to suffer in order that He could then spill His blood for us. And so it's very appropriate for us to do a number of things in response. To first take with confidence. Some of you need to come up here and you need to smile in just pure thanksgiving that you don't have to do the work that Jesus did it for you. Some of you need to come up going... I, there's things that have to change as a result of this knowledge of Jesus. I'm going to repent. I'm not just going to say I'm sorry. I'm going to make some changes. There are some of you who will come up and you say, I feel so guilty and ashamed of who I am. And so you need to take this with confidence, again, with a smile on your face that says, Jesus has covered all your guilt and shame. And so respond appropriately.